But I'm um, glad to introduce to you Kevin Kane, who's the Outreach Director at Olive Branch Community Church in Corona. Um, and so we're blessed to have him here to share the word this morning with us. So to give you as much time as possible, Kevin, bless us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. I expected a round of applause, but uh, I guess I, that, was, that was wrong. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks. Appreciate that. I've spoken in some African-American churches, so I, I like the feedback. You can uh, respond. I've spoken in some Korean churches where there is no response at all, or your basic white churches where the only response is snoring. So uh, feel free to interact. Uh, we're going to be looking at John 17 this morning. Uh, verses 14 through 18. And, and a lot of times when I go to Scripture, I'm kind of like, okay, God, what do you have for me? You know, I want to serve you. I want to do this. I want to act this way. What do you have for me? And, and I started to do that this morning. And in a sense, we'll be looking at that John 17, the, the high priestly prayer, and looking specifically, again, at verses 14 through 18. But one of the songs we sang really hit me. And the verse was, there is no God, there is no one like you. There was no one, there is no one like you, God. Remember, we kind of sang that, we were like doing this sermon all together. And as we come to Scripture, I want to remind us not to come to Scripture and say, okay, God, what do you have for me, as if this is for us. Well, it is for us, but the Bible is a book about God. There is no one like Him. So may we come to Scripture first and foremost in adoration to our great God and great Savior. And thank you uh, for that song this morning. John 17, uh, verses 14 through 18. I'll be reading from the ESV. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And here Jesus is praying this, this high priestly prayer. He says, God, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let's pray. Father, your, your word is alive and active. And again, may we come to this looking at who you are and what you accomplished through Jesus. And may we just be amazed as, as we look to how do you use us? What does this mean as Jesus sent out the disciples, the sent ones? What does that look like for us? But may we reflect back to who you are and be grateful of this salvation and this relationship that we have with you. And it's in the name of your precious Son that we pray. Amen. I woke up early one morning before the alarm went off. So it was probably about quarter to five. I normally got up at five on those days to, to get flying. Because there in the jungle of Indonesia, you got flying early. Because in the afternoons, uh, thunderstorms would come in. So I got up and we lived in an isolated village where there was no electricity. So I turned on the little 12-volt light, which was powered by a, a battery, which was energized each day by a solar panel. And I kind of washed my face and shaved and got my uh, 
pilot outfit on, a little thing for epaulets, so I'd look like a real pilot. And I walked across the runway, lived right on the runway, and by flashlight, got the airplane ready to go. And it was a, a neat day because I was going to be taking a new family, a new missionary family to this part of Indonesia, to go out and look at different villages in our area. There were so many different languages and none of the, the languages there had the Bible in their language at that time. So I was going to fly this family around. It reminded me of many things. It reminded me of a church back home that was behind me and seeing this new family arrive, knowing they had just raised their support. And so how encouraging it was to see the whole body of Christ involved. And it reminded me of them as I talked to this new family about their education and their training Reminded me of the many Sunday school teachers I had and people that slapped the back of my head in junior high when I wasn't really listening like I should have been. And, and, and the whole body and what it takes to, to get a missionary out on the field. Well, I got this family loaded up into the airplane and I was about to fly to a little village called Sikari in this area of what used to be Irianjaya, Indonesia. And the clouds were still really low, right over the tops of the trees. Well, you can't fly navigate by navigational aids in this part of Indonesia because there are no navigational aids for your instruments to use. There's no electricity. This is a very isolated place. There, there are no roads within 50 miles of where we lived. So I kind of looked and waited a little bit and was getting about... 5.30 to quarter to 6 by the time we loaded into the airplane. So I said, Let, let's go ahead and get flying. Actually, I didn't say that to them. I might freak people out. But that was my, my thought. Everything is okay. Uh, just kind of, you know, evangelistically stretching the truth a bit. So we, we got in the plane and took off. And the clouds are about 200 feet over the tops of the trees. And, uh, Probably within the limits of what is safe. But once we got up uh, above the cloud, above the trees, under the clouds, it was solid, but it was good visibility. We went along, and again, I'm not only a pilot, but I'm a trained mechanic. I studied at uh, San Diego Christian College, where they have a mission aviation degree, and, uh, Got some experience at Hawthorne Airport as a mechanic and flight instructor. So again, all these people training and involved in getting me on the field as a pilot, mechanic, uh, missionary, and then taking this family along. So I'm watching the instruments, very aware of what's going on because I'm a little closer to the tops of trees as a, uh, than I'd like to be. We got... Uh, 15-minute flight, we got there to this village called Sikari, and all the runways are just grass. It's cut out of the jungle where the people have leveled the trees and dug up the roots and made a flat landing area that meets certain specifications. Normally, we would fly over the top of that and look and make sure that everything's okay, make sure nobody's sleeping on the runway, that there's no uh, herd of pigs on the runway. You know, the usual stuff you experience when you fly into LAX. (laughs) But the clouds were really low that morning, so I wasn't able to safely fly over that airstrip. It was tucked against some hills. So it's what we call a one-way airstrip. It was uh, level, but the hills were at the end of it. So you would land coming this way, and then you'd turn around, and then when you're ready, you'd take off coming out the other way because there was a hill at the end of it. 
That's pretty important in this story because I came around and slowed the airplane down, touched down right near the end because this runway, it's grass. It's in this wet, swampy area and it's about a quarter of the length of your average small airport around here. So you need a touchdown right at the end. So I set the plane down. Things are going good. I chopped the power, got on the brakes. Nothing happened. So I, I got off the brakes, wondering if it's a hydraulic problem for you mechanics. So got back on the brakes. And the brakes, there was some pressure back, but nothing happened. So you're running through my mind, okay, can I add power and take off? And no, I'm fully loaded. There's a hill at the end. Um, I'm committed. So I touched the brakes again. I got on them and sat there a little bit. And then I realized the good news. The brakes were working. The bad news was we were hydroplaning on a layer of water because it had rained very hard early that morning. And the runway had been worn down, so it was just holding this water. And we were just skidding along with no slowing down. Fully loaded. So I'm stepping on the brakes and trying to get some braking power before the the brakes would lock up. You have a a brake on the right pedal for the right tire and the left for the left tire coming on together. And if it starts to slide sideways, getting off and getting straight. And then about halfway down the airstrip... I realized we were going to crash. Uh, You know, there's not much room. There's uh, probably another couple football fields, and we're uh, long, and we're sliding along at about 60 miles per hour. Uh, Again, thinking, can we take off? No. You know, crash? Yes. Will we live? Yes. Uh, But that really wasn't something I wanted to do, so I'm thinking, what else can I do? And, and again, during that time, it reminds you, you know, why am I here? And I'm not saying all these things went through my mind, but it really reminded me you know, why I am here. And it's not about me. It's not about my safety. It's not even about making my supporters proud. It's about seeing God's name go out to the ends of the earth and to serve this area of the world where nobody had the Bible in their language. And And how do I... How do I help this new missionary family? So I started trying to swerve a little bit. And there's, there's palm trees near the edge. And they would uh, unfortunately built their huts kind of close to the side of the runway. And so I tried to get some drag and hit the brakes again. And we're slowing down a little bit. About three quarters of the way, I'm getting some more braking power. We've settled down. And now I'm just on this mud and sliding and, and hitting the brakes and just... All I could do is keep it in the center of the runway, trying to slide a little bit to get some drag. Now, you remember I said when you take, when you land at this runway, you come in this way, you turn around, and then when you take off, you take off from that area. What happens in a dirt or grass area that you're frequently turning around something like an airplane on over many years? Well, it wears down a little bit. And as I was slowing down about 35 miles an hour, knowing we're going to go off the end, right, you know, getting some braking, right at the end, we hit that little dip where the airplanes always turned around. And it was one big, glorious mud hole. And we hit that, and mud splashed everywhere, and it grabbed the tires and slowed us down enough to get stopped by the end. 
you know, my heart's pounding. I could hardly see the instrument panel. I'm sweating like crazy. I turned and looked to this new missionary family, just see if they're okay. They thought that was just like every other landing in the jungle. <laughs> that was normal. This is day one. They weren't phased a bit. But again, reminded me why I'm there. Because part of this is because of this, this passage. Who is God? This great, big, awesome God. What's my role? Just to respond to His love. All of us are sent ones. What does that mean? Let's walk through this passage because the, the Word of God is, is really powerful. The first little bit of this, uh, Jesus is talking to uh, the Father and saying, I have given them your, the, your Word. And, uh, you know, Jesus as the Word, the book of John stops, starts out talking about uh, Jesus as the Word. He is the Word. We also refer to God's Word, the story of Jesus Christ, from the, the beginning of time to the end is this Word of God. It's important. Read it and study it. What I find really interesting is when I talk about you know people serving in full-time or vocational ministry, whether you're serving in a church or you're going overseas, you are to know God's Word. But wait a second. That sounds a little interesting. If you're in full-time vocation, you're supposed to know God's Word. But what about the rest of us? Aren't we sent ones? We're responsible to know God's Word. It's not for the trained or those who are serving somewhere else or are getting paid for. This is the Gospel. This is that story, that wonderful story. Every day, every one of us hears contradicting voices to God's Word. The people we're talking with, the people we're working with, the commercials, the TV shows, we're bombarded by advertisements telling us it's all about you. It's all about me. And we're talking about issues that take us away from God's Word. We need to be ready for that. Every one of us, as His sent ones, need to know God's Word. We need to be in it and studying His Word. It's just not for the others. It's for all of us. And by the way, opening up the Bible, reading a passage, doesn't immediately transform you. Reading God's Word is a help in the process. But I'd encourage you also to be in a small group, read the Bible with others, let others speak the truth in love to you, and play a role as the Holy Spirit transforms you, transforms you into uh, a follower of Christ, a sanctified follower of Christ as you become more and more like Jesus Christ. We have a personal Savior. And another thing that's going to come out through the rest of this talk is something that really deeply affects our Christianity here in the States and, and how we do church. And it's this individualism that in America tells you, you know what, it's all about you and God. And you figure this out. And you don't need others. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And you can do it and you can figure it out and go find out what your thing is and do your thing. And I want to say no. You know, Christ died for us. Yes, there's a personal aspect to this. But as American individualists, I don't think we're going to get that wrong. What we do get wrong is the corporate aspect. How do we respond as a church? How do we grow as a church? How do we encourage each other as a local body of believers? We need each other. 
We need to be astute disciples of the word and interacting and helping each other, not in a condescending accountability way, but as a put our arms around each other and say, what are you learning? How are you growing? How are you playing a role in reaching the lost and reaching overseas? We need to know God's word. I spent time in one village because there weren't missionaries in the area where I served. There was 24 villages with 15 completely different languages. So I learned how to say hi and goodbye in each language. Well, most of the adults spoke Indonesian and I learned Indonesian when my wife and I first arrived there. So I interacted with them and I landed in one village and kind of one of the things we did every week was fly to a couple village meet villages and meet with the church leaders. So I sat down with these guys in a hot little building because they don't have power and it's just hot and humid right on the equator every day. And we sat and we started talking, How, how's things going in your church? How can I help you? And this guy, Marcus, said, you know, Kevin, there, there's some younger guys in our church and some of them have been out to town and they got a junior high education. So now they're back here in our village and they can read and they can really grasp God's word better. And we're still wrestling with this this high form of Indonesian in our Bible. Should we let them preach? Some of them want to preach. Who should preach in the church? So as a good missionary, I said, I don't know. What does God's word say? Let's open it up. But you know what? You, you, God's word isn't a question and answer book. It's not like the FAQ, Andrew, just, you know, what about this? You know, do I drink, dance and chew or go with girls that do? Or we have these little categories that we have the, the right and wrong things. When scripture is really about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So who, who preaches in a church? Well, how does that affect our relationship with Christ? Where is their relationship with Christ? What about the leaders of the church? Have they vetted these young men according to an elder standard? Or if they're not, can they allow them to speak in church and train them along? So this isn't to open your Bible to this page and here is the answer. It's understanding God's Word. And we all need to be ready. We all need to be learning and growing. You can take free courses online, but know God's Word. Just last week I watched... I said there were no Bibles in any languages. 267 languages in this part province of Indonesia. Just recently I watched a 12-minute video of the, I think it was the third Bible that was, third language that was completed, the hoopla language. You should see the excitement and the tears in people's eyes as they grasp God's word and their language for the first time. There's another one in the Kimyal. You can Google Kimyal and you can look at a five or ten minute clip of them just weeping and one pastor saying, you know what, I learned the Dani language and I learned the Indonesian language. And so I've been looking at the Bible from those languages. But now, now I can understand God's story as he relates to us in our heart language. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here with I think there's been 27 different North American English translations made since 1980. And do I really appreciate it? Do I really dive in? We all are sent ones as followers of Christ. We are to know God's Word. And this is good, exciting stuff that is just radical. Know God's Word. 
The next part of this verse, he says, I've given them your word. And he was talking about himself. I'm using that again, the word as scripture. And the world has hated them because they're not of this world. The word world hated them. It reminds me so often I'm frustrated when I when the world doesn't understand us or or my uh, perspective just talking last night with someone who wasn't a follower of Christ about abortion and the different ways we view that or if we view same sex marriage or other issues, we put it on the table. We're uh, often as Christians immediately labeled as intolerant and we're not heard and and we want to fight against that. And I'd say, yes, we need to argue that logically, calmly, uh, study some apologetics and learn how to walk through that. Great books like Tactics from Greg Kokel. But we should also expect that. And, and I realize so often I expect heaven here on earth. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this, this is earth. This, this isn't heaven. I, I think we should expect that even more. You know, so often we end up getting mad at God when we don't have heaven here on earth. And I expect this earth to be a whole lot worse than it is. By God's grace, we are moving forward. So let's try not to expect this to be heaven on earth. Know that we are in this battle. And Scripture talks about this battle and be tying things into a World War II perspective. Um, there's not too many slackers in a battle. And if there are, bad things happen. And so as we prepare for this battle, we need to understand there are different perspectives. Let's not distance ourselves from the world. Let's engage them, but don't expect them to completely understand. But our role is still to love. And as sent ones, may we never, ever be afraid to talk about Jesus. Because it might be awkward. Google Pen Gillette gets a Bible when you get home. And there's a five-minute video clip of an atheist saying, You Christians say you have the answer. Why are you so afraid to share it? He said, I've seen some Christians say, Well, it could be awkward. If you think you have the answer, if you think you know the way to get to heaven, the atheist then says... How much do you have to hate somebody not to share that answer with them? And he says, I know my atheist friends are all going to get upset with me, but if you think you have the answer, don't stand back, engage, talk, listen. And as atheist, he says, I know you're wrong, but still, uh, you shouldn't shirk back. That's an atheist preaching at us. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We don't hide our lamp, uh, what is it, under a... A bushel? Doesn't a bushel catch on fire? I've got to go back and read that passage again. So it talks about the, the word is important. The world has hated them. And here's uh, kind of affirms this next part. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Now, I, I've spent some time overseas in this very, uh, what, backwards group. No electricity, no education. Very animistic Worshipping the spirits, looking for a spirit issue and everything. So I came back and I wrote my master's thesis on spiritual warfare and what that really means and what does scripture really tell us to do. And, and, you know, uh, a lot of the books tell us to walk through steps one, two, three, four, and there's this magical pattern. And now I think God's word is sufficient. So let's know God's word. 
How do we, how do we do, how do we get involved in this battle? Share the gospel. What doesn't Satan want? Us to share the gospel. Let's go out and live, understand our role as ambassadors and live for him. By the way, if we are soldiers, if we are ambassadors, we're not really doing it while we're gathered here. Now, this is nice. This is nice and comfortable. Nice chairs. I got kind of comfortable there. Good songs. Great worship team. But this is the church gathered for only a little tiny bit of every week. We go out from here into the battle. May we get people praying for us and let's move forward as sent ones. What soldier doesn't keep rehearsing, practicing, getting better? Read Ephesians 6. It talks about this armor. What is it? Who The armor really is who we are in Christ. And we don't magically walk through the process every morning and pretend or visualize we're putting the helmet on and the breastplate. It's who we are in Christ, understanding God's Word, how we live that out in a relationship with this Almighty God because we are Every one of us sent ones. If you are a follower of Christ, and I realize there may be some people here who aren't followers of Christ, and this message doesn't make much sense. But I do want you to know that if you're not a follower of Christ, Christianity is not something you try on. I've heard people say, well, I tried Christianity, it didn't work. No, Christianity is where you die to yourself. And you live completely for this Jesus Christ that we've been talking about. And the next point in this verse, it just was verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. John, 1 John 2.15 reminds us again, don't love the things of the world. How many of our prayers are about the things of this world? How many times, instead of wanting to be on a World War II battleship that's going somewhere, We prefer a cruise ship that goes around in circles and it's all about our comfort. Now, I love cruise ships and I love any time anybody wants to pamper me. But that's not reality. That's not the real world. Boats are meant to take us places, to get on board with what God is doing and to live as sent ones. And the next part of this verse is uh, sanctify them in truth and a reminder that we are sanctified set apart. Second Corinthians five twenty again calls us ambassadors and our proper response as an ambassador as an, as, and as a sent one is to reach out and serve others. And here Jesus talks about the disciples and us as well. And in the same way, the, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, was given to the disciples, but also expands to us. Uh, that we are sent as a people, not individually. Now, I talked to a friend of mine. He's been a, a missionary in Spain for years. Really tough place to reach people with the gospel of Christ. And he recently went to a missions conference of, of, of college. And they said, man, could you come and share what God is doing in Spain and be willing to sit at your, your booth and talk to people who are majoring in missions and interested? And he said, all day long, he stood there as people came up to talk to him but not about what it's going to take to accomplish the Great Commission. What do you think people talk to him about? Them! 
They said, oh, you know, God's really created me with a, a love and a passion for unicycles. How can I use... Nobody said this. I'm just making this up. How can I use unicycles in Irian Jaya, Indonesia? Well, it's, it's kind of swampy there and there's no roads or pathways. But okay, then I'll go talk to somebody else. And somebody says, I have this passion for drama and what's it going to take? And so question, how are you using that in your church? Oh, I'm not really attending a church right now. I want to go overseas and, and go be a part of what God's doing. And my friend came away very disappointed. Not one person said, I am a sent one. What is it going to take to reach the world with the gospel? Isn't that the question? Isn't that why Jesus came to reach the ends of the earth? Isn't that why we have a missions conference? Because though there are great needs around us, the needs are far greater in other places. And not one person came up at that conference and said, what's it going to take? What do you need done? If we really have a soldier mentality, if we really understand this battle, we step up and we say, what's it going to take? Here I am, send me. But our individualism has taken us to our specific gifts and roles. And I'm not saying that God can't use drama and unicycles for His glory. I'm saying that we often start with us. And and I think we need to start, how can God use Village Bible Church in a greater way? It was phenomenal to watch these videos and them thanking you. And they didn't just do this pass. I'm a visitor here. I'm from the outside. They didn't just say, thanks for the money. Keep it coming. Right? I mean, they did say thank you, but it was the emails, the visits, the phone calls. You all really care. You're involved in sending us. That was encouraging. Keep up that good work and step into that role of what, how does... Uh, village Bible Church serve God. Everyone is involved. And that takes us to this World War II mindset. By the way, having flown an airplane in the jungle for years, seeing the airplanes on their back, on their side, kind of bothers me uh, a little bit. But uh, I understand the deco. It's okay. Uh, In World War II, everyone in the U.S. was involved. It took uh, uh, rationing of things, lights out. It affected the whole country. And the country understood that. Hey, we need to do some things in order to survive as a nation. And you look back to other wars. Remember Nathan Hale, I think it was in the Revolutionary War. He said, my only regret is that I have but one life to give for my country. What if we had a church, a nation full of Christians that say my only regret is I only have one life to give to my Savior? How can I pour that out in the greatest way? And I'm going to tell you, don't stop short. A lot of us say, well, you know, I, I, I write an email once every three months. That's my duty. Now, talk to Andrew. Talk to your senior pastor. Is there something greater? What else can I do? Can I live? Here's my finances. Do you think I could live more simpler and give more? A lot of us are able to give liberally without even giving sacrificially. What are the missionaries we send? What what standard living standard are they at? Can we give? How can we encourage them? 
Now, I've talked to some churches. Uh, there was one, I, I moved recently from uh, Pennsylvania. There's a little church and they said, well, we have a missionary in Cambodia. We want to send 10 people over there to encourage them. All right, good idea. How are you going to encourage them? How are you going to encourage their missionary? And they just kind of, yeah, we're just going to kind of go there. Well, you know, at $3,000 a head, sending 10 of you, I'm not good at math, but that sounds like a $30,000 hug. Right? It, it, can we do something better? They said, well, we just want to encourage them. Well, then read about the history of Cambodia. Read about the killing fields in 1975 to through 78, where a third of Cambodia was wiped out by Pol Pot brutally. Start to understand what it's like to reach a people with no hope. And then how you share the gospel. You want to encourage your missionaries, study about where they are. Now, all of you can't know all about the backgrounds of all your missionaries. But choose one or two. Understand what's going on in current history. Read a blog from that country and understand what, what the theologians are thinking, what the current world reports are from that nation so you can understand what your missionary is dealing with. Everyone is involved. You know what? In World War II, we understand, understood the priority of foot soldiers. We needed them out on the front lines. That doesn't demean or diminish our role back here at all. You have a, a lot of foot soldiers out there. It's going to take all of you to pour in and, and get connected as much as possible. I want you to leave today coming to your church and saying, what's it going to take for Village Bible Church to reach the ends of the earth? You know what? I think you got a great start. How do you encourage and support these missionaries? What's, what might be next for Village Bible Church? I don't know. But the needs of this world are great. We need to be aware of that. We need to be pursuing that. And most of the time, I think we just feel inadequate. You know, when I talk to people about knowing God's Word or studying, and I challenge, and they say, well, you know, I'm not in Bible school, and those guys study, and I don't really have to, and I'm just back here. What I think really hits a lot of us is our insecurities. We think, oh, I just, I just can't do it. You know, look at the issues in my life. Look at the sin issues. Look at who I am. And just a couple of years ago, I went back to visit this part of Papua, and I met with Matthias. And Matthias came to my uh, little house I was staying in and uh, sat up and chatted with him one night. And he was an elder in this village, and he'd been coming to this conference with about 30 other el- elders who had... Uh, canoed in, but he was an elder in this area. And he was a leader in the church, and I knew he was well-respected. And he said, Kevin, I'm not worthy. I'm an elder, and I'm not worthy. And I said, well, you know what? None of us are really worthy. It's all about God. He said, no, you don't understand. He said, you met my, my father at the end of the airstrip. And every day I'd walk down to the end of the airstrip. And by the way, at the end of the airstrip sat Matthias' dad. Because of a stroke, he could no longer walk. But Dos Equis has it wrong. Matthias' dad was the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> Big guy. Uh, but he said, Kevin, you met my dad at the end of the airstrip. Oh, yeah, interesting guy. Uh, he said, well, you know, my dad has two wives. 
I said, yeah, yeah, I met both of them. And he said, well, and I talked to his dad, and his dad said, you know, before he was a Christian, he had taken a couple wives. When the gospel came into that area, he accepted the Lord. What were his options? He chose to take both wives and both families to the church, and he raised them up in the Lord. And here is Matthias, and Matthias' brother from the other mom was also an elder in the church. But Matthias said, I, I think this is wrong. I'm not worthy because, Kevin, in the eyes of the Lord, my dad was married, and, and that would be right and good for one man and one woman. But then he married my mother second. And he said, I don't think that marriage is right before God. And he said, I'm a product of that second marriage. I'm not worthy. And I shared with him a story about a, a, a mother who got pregnant through a married, or a lady who got pregnant through a married man, ran off, had a baby all alone, and gave it up for adoption. What about that baby? Is that baby worthwhile? Is that baby worthy? There was sin committed, but it wasn't that baby's fault. I said the baby was adopted and raised by godly parents. And I married that little girl. And Matthias remembered my wife from our time there in the jungle. He said, wow. He said, I would have said she isn't worthy because of all that sin. But took us back to who Jesus is in that relationship. We are all worthy. Matthias went away realizing it's not about what his dad, whether his dad had one, two, three wives or where he was in the process. He's worthy because Jesus Christ had forgiven his sins. He's worthy because Jesus Christ sees him as blameless and holy. Go back and read God's Word. Ephesians 2 talks about how God views us, not probably the way you view you. We are sent ones. We are chosen by the great God in heaven. May we live completely for Him. Yes, we have missionaries. We have pastors. That does not diminish our role. And knowing every day we need to go out intentionally and serve our great God and Savior both here and especially to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. God, sometimes when I look at Your Word and I try to understand this, I feel this weight of responsibility. But it's not meant to be a weight. What a celebration to know that you have chosen us to be used by you. And I go back to that great quote by a missionary statement. If statesman, if the commissioning of an earthly king is considered an honor, why do we look at the commissioning of a heavenly king as a sacrifice? God, it's not. Jesus made the sacrifice for us. Thank you, God, that you use us in our brokenness, in our imperfections, in our selfishness. God, I pray specifically for this body of Christ here at Village Bible Church, for the the elders, for the pastors as they lead, and every one of us to step forward and say, what's it going to take? God, what needs to be done? Rather than, what can I do to be self-fulfilled in the process? God, help us in the process of reaching the ends of the earth to take our eyes off of ourselves and onto you. But God, then you honor us by using us for your glory. May we stand amazed at what you do, what you continue to do in our area, in our country, and in 
to the ends of the earth. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.